0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the TeacherCast Educational Network. My name is Jeff Bradbury. Thank you so much for joining us today and making TeacherCast your home for professional development. We are live. It is Wednesday night, April 11th. Tonight we're talking all about data privacy, student data privacy, and we're going to be taking a look at all of the different angles, especially some of the hot buttons that's happening lately out in Congress when it comes to our own data privacy. We have a great guest on today talking all about things that we need to be keeping in mind, I'm going to say, when it comes to the apps that we're using, the ed tech tools that we're using. But first, I want to take a look at some of the non-technology things that are happening these days. I heard that something is happening in the world of puppetry. Sam, how are you doing today? Welcome <laughs> to the show.
1: I'm doing really well, Jeff. It has been an exciting week in puppetry because I have been working on puppets and 3D printing, and I have a puppet in my hand named Bob the Dragon, Hello, I'm Bob the Dragon. And he his head is actually the shape of a lemon <clears throat> that was really weird looking that grew on one of our lemon trees out here mm-hmm. and I scanned that in and then 3D printed it and then painted what I had and applied feathers cuz feathers make everything magical. And uh, I'm just having a really good time kind of figuring out how I can give kids different ways into 3D printing and digital making. And starting with an organic form like a lemon, scanning it in and then adding to it is a lot of fun.
0: It looks pretty neat. And I noticed that you have a few new uh, episodes coming out of your podcast, Beyond the Hour of Code. And you recently put out a post on TeacherCast about that.
1: Yes, in the Beyond the Hour of Code podcast, we have updated you on several of our running projects, including Notorious LED and an <laughs> upcoming car hack project.
0: And what is that all about?
1: Did you know that yours, you know, it's about data, Jeff? Oh. Did you know that your car creates data constantly and some of it is transmitted to your dashboard But a lot of it, like your manifold temperature, may not be directly displayed on your dashboard. It just lights up when something goes really, really wrong. But even before something goes wrong, there's data coming into your car. So you can buy or build an onboard diagnostic device that reads that data and displays it. And I'm going to construct one, and I believe I'm going to be using a Raspberry Pi computer to do it.
0: That sounds pretty cool. And I know you're talking about data today. I'm going to tell you that the data number for this show is four, and that happens to be how many fantastic episodes out there of a new podcast by our one and only Jennifer And Jen, how are you today? Welcome to the show. Hi.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm actually really excited um, to have this conversation. I am by no means an expert in this field. We have some pretty strict policies in my district uh, around uh, where we can – what sort of apps and tools we can use with students and we need to get parental permission for pretty much anything outside the the G Suite apps, um, which I think is great, but I'm very interested in in picking Casey's brain and hearing what uh, she has to say um, about it and doing some really, really phenomenal learning tonight. So I'm excited to be part of the conversation.
0: I am, as you said, looking forward to learning about it, too. And talk to us a little bit about that wonderful show that you have going on there. What's the name of it again?
2: Shooks and GIF is the name of the podcast that I do with uh, Kim Paula Shook. And we are on episode four. And essentially, we just share uh, tech treasures that we've come across either recently or that we've used a lot that week and realized how much we love. And we try to keep it to 20 to 30 minutes. But lately, we've been getting really excited. So we went a little over 30. So we're going to pare it back instead of sharing three each. We're going to do now you're saying- two each.
0: You're saying EdTech treasures out there. I'm assuming your yeah. first three episodes were all about puppets.
2: Uh, 100% puppets. So puppets, all puppets, all the time, everything. But the idea of having puppets being made off a 3D scanner is kind of exciting to me. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So it's really good. And then, uh, little sneak peek we have a special guest actually coming on uh next week to episode number five who was the inspiration that really sort of got the ball rolling for us who well, i finally decided because he did this i think i can do that and uh are the if you listen are to saying? Uh, his initials are not EC. No, no, he's not. I love Eric Kurtz. <laughs> that, is, that is not a, a a secret to anyone. No, his uh, his initials are not that, but he does like to ditch things.
0: Oh, we'll have to uh, wait and see who that could possibly be. But we also said that the, the number of the show, the data number for the show is four. And today is a very exciting day over here at TeacherCast. We just found out that our brand new podcast called EdTech in the Classroom uh, was just granted releasing over on iTunes. Um, Brand new podcast over here on the TeacherCast Educational Network all about the EdTech that is in your classrooms. Um, We used to have a show here called the App Spotlight. We did over 400 shows featuring EdTech companies, app developers, you name it. And when we did our relaunch a few weeks ago, we said, ah, let's put this app show thing away and and relaunch, rebrand. So if you go over to edtechintheclassroom.com you can check it out. We have four episodes out there right now. The last episode that we did was with a fantastic company called Learn Platform, a great app out there that essentially helps you figure out with your school district the right oh technology God. for your school. My guest on that show is the same guest that's on here tonight. I want to bring on a good friend now from North Carolina. Am I saying this right? I want to bring yeah. on Miss Casey Rimmer. Casey, how are you today? Welcome to the show.
3: I'm good, thanks. I'm starting to feel like I should have something to share about puppets. I feel like I'm Ooh, missing out. Uh, I Next time, I'll bring my puppets.
0: Well, don't worry. <laughs> it's an hour show, and you, you're welcome to come up with something, or make your own puppet. Can you start? Do you have a 3D printer?
3: Um, not here no
0: we'll have to get you one tell us a little bit about yourself Casey
3: so my name is Casey and I work in a relatively large district in North Carolina and I have been I was a classroom teacher first and I was in part of our our very first round of one-to-one computers and the first group to kind of roll them out in our district I really loved it I really took off with it and I ended up in an instructional technology facilitator role fast forward a few years um, a few different moves and changes. I used to work for technology services. I have a really great relationship with the folks that work in that building and I still work in that building. And recently I moved over to teaching and learning and kind of our curriculum part of our, of our district. And and I, I think that it doesn't really make a difference to me because I either live in one building and I'm really good neighbors with, you know, teaching and learning, or I live in teaching and learning and technology is like, those are my people. So, um, I kind of straddle the two role, two roles in the two different divisions and kind of help kind of bring them together so that's really where my passion is I love it I love how my job is different every day and how exciting it is
0: well, It is great to have you back on the show. Let's bring everybody here on our panel on the topic for tonight is talking about data privacy. Now, obviously, this has been a big topic this week. If you happen to be listening to the news or maybe sitting in front of the House of Representatives today, there's so (laughs) many different things going on here. Um, Casey, let me kind of throw the ball at you here. What what is the I don't even know where to start with this. Talk to us a little bit about student data privacy. Why is this important topic these days?
3: So I think that the reason that I get really fired up about it and really excited about it at the same time is that it's so complex and it's so hard to navigate. And the the thing that I get really caught up in and and really um, grinds my gears a little bit is it's all such lawyer terms and it's very very hard to navigate. And, And I don't think it's fair for us to ask teachers to navigate that on their own. It's a really hard thing, and we all know how busy teachers are and and tech coaches are and things like that, and so when we are looking at Terms of service and privacy policies and all these laws that have all these letters and acronyms, it's really hard for them. And most times teachers probably are going to say, I don't know what that means. So I'm just going to do what I think is right for my kids. And, and they, I know teachers are always acting in the best interest of their students and they're trying to be engaging and they're trying to find the greatest new tool. But sometimes there's these kind of like, things lurking in the water, that I would just like to clear up the water a little bit and help people understand what some of the risks are to help protect their students and protect the teachers. I think that's really important. So uh, a lot of times folks feel like, you know, the, the district says no, or, or Jen, you kind of said, you know, my district's really strict, and, and you have a pretty good attitude about that, and I think it's a great thing that your district asks for parent permission for most everything outside of G suite. And, mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of folks are like, I'm like the no lady, right? That, that people are like, gosh, she said, we can't use that. We can't use that. We, I don't want to be the no person, but I want to be the person who has safety in mind for students and for teachers.
0: So let's take a look at some of the vocabulary here, right? We have, COPA, we have FERPA. I believe SIPA is another one. Am I say, saying that right? Yes. Um, what are they? What, what is so, what, what is COPA? Let's start. Let's just kind of break these down before we get into the discussions here.
3: Okay, so COPA is the Child Online Privacy Protection Act, and that's the one that you most often see that um, vendors and partners in, in ad tech companies kind of they talk about a little bit in their terms of service, and that basically is put in place to protect students. I like to use the analogy that it's protecting people from reaching out to students under the age of 13, so that's kind of the magic line most often, right, is 13. Sometimes you'll see 18, um, but that's usually outlined or pushed by COPA, and what that means is that companies can't share maybe like a student email address with other people right i always say that nothing's ever free right and come and lots of tools are free but but have you ever registered for a conference and then got more junk mail than you know what to do with, right? You're like, oh, my goodness, where is this all coming from? Can you imagine being under the age of 13 and getting messages like that from people soliciting your money and your time and things like that? So coppa is really set to protect students from people getting their information and reaching out to them. I always say it's like providing providing protection against people telling students hey you just want an ipad click here right that's what it's trying to kind of keep keep that phenomenon away from students under the age that they can't make that decision does that make sense
0: and the the rule so our understanding is currently 13
3: that's, that's most often what you see with the FTC and what, what they say about COPA. That's what they've kind of said is the age that children under the age of 13 are, are not allowed to – websites are not allowed to co- collect information under the age of 13. And that's why you see most often that tools will say, you must be 13 years or older to use this tool. So basically what they're saying is they're probably going to share your information.
0: Now, going from COPA over to FERPA, what is that?
3: Okay, so FERPA is is actually um, more – it's a, a much bigger Privacy Act, right? That's Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. And, and I think of this as a teacher. If we think back, this is when we talk about, like, you're not allowed to use student names, first name, last name. You know, you have to kind of um, – use, protect student names and email and things like that, or who can see transcripts, who can see grades. I think of it most often in a more traditional way, right? FERPA has been around for a long time, as long as education has been around. But when we're talking about student privacy and protecting, they they also have an amendment called Protection of Pupil Rights Amendment. and And FERPA is really kind of focusing on What is the information that we're allowed to share as districts? What kind of information? And we have to notify parents that we're sharing that information. So that's kind of the big piece, I think, as it it relates to student data, especially in a tech environment. It's it's really kind of who we're sharing information with and what information we're sharing. Now,
0: when we're looking at all of these things... um... Is this a a United States rule or? And I'm asking because one of our co-hosts here happens to live in Canada. Uh, Jen, do you abide by COPA/FERPA? Is there a Canadian no. version of this? Yeah. How do you, you know?
2: Really and I just looking things? it up. We we, I, we actually have a lot of companies that reach out to us and and they say, oh, we're COPA compliant, we're FERPA compliant. And I'm like, That's great, we're Canadian. <laughs> So that doesn't mean a whole lot to us because obviously the legislation between the two countries is, is very different. Um, so we do have um, the Office for the Privacy Commissioner of Canada that's rolled out some things. And there are policies, but for the life of me at this moment, the acronym escapes me. But there are policies in place that are like um, COPA and FERPA. But I, I would hazard to say ours are actually even a little bit... Um, more strict, maybe, is the word that I'm looking for um, in what they'll allow us to do. There's not—I don't know if it's because we have a smaller population, so we're able to control a little bit more in that sense. Um, but I can certainly throw some Canadian resources for any Canadian listeners um, into the show notes. So uh, the commissions come out with uh, resources. For students, there's one that's a graphic novel that's been published uh, just to tell students about, you know, privacy, the internet, and and them and, and their place in that so that they can understand it, especially as they, they cross that threshold, because it is 13 for us as well, um, to cross that threshold from sort of being protected to not being as protected. And when they are vulnerable, and we know like the, the brain changes that are happening in young adults, right? From those ages, from 13 to 17, they're not making the best decisions. I remember hearing once, um, someone talking and saying the reason that we ask teenagers why they're behaving like two-year-olds is because they their brain is physically behaving like a two-year-old it's the exact same changes that happen when you're two in a different part of your brain so i'm I'm, i hazard to probably get this wrong but i think it's your frontal lobe when you're two and then it becomes your amygdala so that that like center of, of emotion that has the exact same changes so if we're going to be you know sort of thrusting our students out into this world from 13 onward. So you're looking at like eighth grade. Um, we need to prepare them. So they have some, uh, resources for that. And then they also have educational resources for, for parents, a whole bunch of them topics to talk about what we can do to protect them, um, just different privacy packages. And then they also prepared tips for parents to share so that it can sort of be a, a united front so that we're all talking the same language. Hmm.
0: Now, Sam, you and I the other day were having a conversation about our amygdalas. What were you saying about <laughs> making sure that we have the right protections in place when choosing the, the software or applications that we're using with our kids?
1: Well, if we were talking about amygdalas, then we were actually probably talking about creating the proper learning environment so students are ready to learn and they're not, you know, afraid of the bear. But um, the, I believe the resource that we were talking about, the one that I've used before, was from commonsense.org and they have a number of toolkits and cheat sheets and lesson plans and tools to reach out to parents, the same kind of, you know, whole uh, community approach, which is so important when you're having these conversations, as well as a privacy evaluation kind of check-in. So you can put in your favorite online tool like Desmos and it'll tell you that, yes, it is intended for children under 13 or teens or adults over 18. And they're kind of a, a way to help filter those things
0: i think most people when they're looking at student data privacy they figure okay my school is a microsoft school it's a google school and this particular app has microsoft or google sign-on it must be safe uh casey you're you're shaking your head way before i finish this conversation here right so talk to me about this we we call this single sign-on Which basically means if your kids sign on, you're alone with this, right? Because it doesn't have to be safe.
3: Yeah. So, so there's, there's, I learned a term while I was kind of studying some of this stuff recently. And there's, there's two kinds of, kind of, pathways in the first one is is partnering with a third party tool and just because you say go ahead and use my what already I what I already have established whether that be a social media profile whether that be you know Microsoft or Google or whatever that does not mean that they are agreeing to the 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 terms that you've agreed with with Microsoft or with Google—that means. <laughs> I'm sorry, something in my throat. Sorry. That means that you are agreeing to their terms, and you haven't even seen them, right? So there's no there, there's no way that you know what kind of information they're mining from your account at this point, or what they're going to do with that data. So that's it's that's a terrible thing to do it's very easy to do and that's kind of the point the other the other kind of way in which is some open, terrible things
1: easy to do since 1974
3: right. <laughs> is, is this term called clickwrap and that is when you download the new iTunes right there's 76 pages of of terms of agreement that nobody reads right and the, probably the average person Right, and, and then you can have it emailed to you. How many people do you think actually get it emailed to them and, and read it then, right? They've already agreed to it. What does it matter if it's emailed to you or not? You, you said, email it to me, and I agree. So um, that's called a click wrap. So that's my, that's my new term for today is a click wrap. It says, do you agree to these terms? And, and we could give students, children, minors, the opportunity to click accept. I have a, a seven-year-old who uses an iPad all the time, and a box comes up, and he hits whatever he has to hit for it to go away so he can keep using that iPad. And so so that's like tot- – like you said, Sam, it's making terrible things really easy to do.
0: So should technology in the classroom be at the discretion of the teacher, the adult, the professional – or be at the discretion only of the district meaning if the district says no and the teacher wants to then the district says no
3: so so i'm torn because i'm in a very large district and it's really hard for if i wanted to approve if i had to approve every single tool that a teacher used in their classroom that's all i would do every day all day right and it would and
1: you would still be behind and everybody would be mad at you
3: that's right and i would tell yes. people no and they would so so really the more efficient thing to do is to educate folks on the best way to kind of run their own screening now absolutely we try and keep up as fast as we can you know tech tools are being created and deleted as fast as we're talking so it's 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 a huge moving target it's so hard to keep a approved list did you guys
1: hear about go animate no, they're shutting down their education wing next year, at the end of the year, and they they had this little thing that said, "As you move on from GoAnimate, we recommend you look for tools that are COPA compliant." So my coworker said, oh. "So do we read this as saying theirs aren't, and they're not going to be? So they're giving up? That's that's what's going on here."
0: Wow,
3: I hadn't heard yeah. that. That's-
0: but just because something like GoAnimate, let's just use this as an example, and I've never read their terms of service, like the average person apparently, doesn't mean you can't use it in your classroom, right? If a teacher wants to have an account and create an, a, a GoAnimate, as an example, for a learning purpose, they can still use that in a teaching environment. Yeah. FERPA, as I understand it, just comes in of when do you want your kids to make an account,
3: That's right. That's right. right. And, but that's super confusing for a teacher, right? Right. So I have, I have a really good example. I had to do a presentation. I I worked with this school and I had this bang up presentation ready to go, right? It used Flipgrid. And so I was like, well, I'm going to do this Flipgrid presentation. I put in a request for it to be approved and added to our iPads so that I could say, and you can use it on our iPads. And, and my colleague who, does some of the filtering for the apps said you can't use Flipgrid. It says you have to be 18, 13 or older, or 18 or older to make an account. And I thought, how did I let this happen? Like I am the person who is always talking about terms of service and privacy policy and, you know, making sure kids can use tools. And uh, how did I let that happen? And after I went back and looked, it said to create an account right? The teacher's the only person who has to create the account. The kids aren't creating accounts when they're making flips and adding to a grid. And so for a minute, I was like, wait a minute. So someplace in their terms of service, it says you cannot create an account. If you are under the age of 18 and for a long time I was teaching teachers to go to those terms of service and the privacy policies and do control F and see if you can find the number 13 or the number 18 because a lot of times that's how you can find it because there's six pages of legalese that nobody knows how to read so that's my little shortcut but my little shortcut circle back and got me right because kids don't have to create accounts. But if I was a classroom teacher, I probably would have been like, oh, man, we can't use that because I wouldn't have had the time to spend 30 minutes determining if flip grade was OK for my students to use or not. So and-
0: where do we go to learn what these things are, right? Like, how do we how do we know as as average teachers what it is? I mean, are we expected to go through all the terms of service? Is that why we have administrators, tech directors, tech coaches, things like that? What do you
3: I? I I think it's a healthy, healthy mix kind of a both, right? I think that we as teachers and educators, we need to model good behavior on the internet with people, you know, not, not putting your full name. We've, we've been hearing that for a long time, right? Don't ever put your first and last name if somebody asks you for something and be careful who you're giving your email address to or your location or where you live or too much info, right? And that's, that's really where we have to kind of start and teach students to be kind of aware of that and how they behave on the internet. but also, kind of talking about some of these terms and saying to teachers, just be aware that there's these things out here. There's some really great lists, like um, the the student privacy. I'm drawing a blank. The student org is a page, and and they have people. I linked it in the show notes. They have a list of of companies who have signed their pledge, right? And and for the most part, you I you can say okay like there this is a company that's standing up for student privacy and and they're signing a pledge saying we will not do this we will not do this and we will not do this so so that's always a really good thing to look at is that the end all be all list it's not right but just kind of working with teachers i think it's the district's responsibility to work with teachers and kind of say hey this is what you kind of have to know a little bit about i don't think anybody, I don't expect any teacher to be an expert about all of this information. But just to be aware, because I know every teacher wants to use the best, most engaging tool. And often, it's really enticing to use a free tool. But nothing is ever free, right? They Somebody's got to pay the bills. And, and sometimes that's advertisements. Sometimes that's, you know, selling data that they collect. Sometimes who knows what it is, right? So just having that in mind, like, just being cautious, but using, so the the last thing I would say for teachers is to use district provided tools, right? Always err on the side of caution. Like Jen said, even if it doesn't require parent permission, what's it going to hurt if you get it, right? What is, what is transparency ever kind of hurt? How has it ever hurt a teacher parent relationship to say, hey, we're going to use these tools. And, and I don't know, Jen, how do you do it? Do you, do you send a letter at the beginning of the
2: year? Do you Teachers. we actually our, our policy is to send for every tool that we use um so you can't blink yeah. it at it saying i know there's a neighboring district ours who they they say we're going to use our professional judgment and there's they have an opt-out instead of an opt-in we do for every tool they're they're starting lean now because they're realizing we're using so many that we can send one home saying here's all the tools we feel we're going to use um and i think the advantage to that is that well, we don't speak the legalese, at least in my district, we have a lot of lawyer parents who might be able to inform us in our own practice, too. And then opening that sort of community dialogue, I think, can be really valuable. Now, it, it, you can also have some snags, right? Like there's a, not a lot of people in my district who, well, there are a lot who, who do, but they're not allowed to use Seesaw because of um, it it contradicts with some of our Canadian privacy laws for students. And so they don't, and that came out through parent conversation from my understanding and, and talking with district um, attorneys and that. So, you know, that can happen, but again, we're, we're there for the safety. My, my concern right now, and our, a lot of our discussion is around add-ons and extensions for Chrome and uh, G Suite tools because they're like, oh, it's G Suite, we can use it. But if you don't really know where that data is being stored, so New Vision's Cloud Lab, for example, who does, you know, um, they do formula, they do autograph, they've said, no, everything is stored in Google, it's yours, and because we're an EDU domain and we have it, we're fine. But then there's other ones that you don't know where data is being stored or if data is being stored. And so because this sort of goes back to our comments earlier that, If we um, we automatically think if we can sign in with Google, it's fine. And same with this; it's an affiliate. It's it's built into the Google tool, so yeah, we can use it. Pear Deck, for example, I just had a really big conversation last weekend with a rep from Pear Deck who said, no, if you use our, if I if I understood it correctly in Pear Deck, please correct me if I'm wrong. um, If you use their add-on and slides, it's fine because that data is stored in Google. But if you use their standalone product elsewhere, that is a a sort of a different privacy policy. So there's there's a lot of it's it's an onion, right? There's a lot of layers. So
0: clearly, there's there's a lot of different things that we're going to be talking about with all of these things. But speaking of ads and speaking of data and speaking of working with others, we want to take a pause here for our friends over at the Principal Center.
2: If you're seeking a new
0: educational leadership role, it's essential to start practicing for interviews now. Most candidates for principal or assistant principal job openings wait to start practicing until they get the call, which honestly is too late you have the opportunity to get an edge by starting to prepare now before you have an interview on the calendar. I'm Justin Bader, director of the Principal Center, and I've created a free PDF of 52 practice interview questions. Download them now at principalcenter.com questions. And welcome back to the Tech Educator Podcast. We are here talking all about data and privacy protection. Sam, now you were talking about some of the things that you're doing that don't require knowledge of COPA, no, not requiring knowledge of FERPA. Um, You're and I'm joking aside here the stuff you're doing with puppets and animations and robots that is completely safe technology to bring into the classroom. Talk to us a little bit about how to create a a learning environment that is tech savvy but doesn't necessarily require kids to have to even think about creating these accounts.
1: Right. And that's just something that's an ongoing challenge for educators who work with students as young as mine, because I started pre-K and go up through sixth grade. So most of these, you know, under 13 things, I'm like, well, okay, what are we going to do? And what we do is we talk to students a lot about where data is and what tools are local tools and what tools are connected tools We really privilege the local tools. We store a lot of our data on our machines. And when we record video before we share it, it goes through an adult. Um, And these practices do take more time, but we get good results. The other thing that I work on doing with my students is having them aware of when they're sharing their face and where they're sharing their face. Um, Some of our students in our school have a policy that their faces are never shared ever. Other students, uh, you know, I can take their picture and share it on social media if it's something that we're doing in class because they've agreed to that with the school. And for all of our students, though, when we talk about making videos, one of the options that is always available are these puppets. And, you know, I have students of all ages build puppets at different time and anything from a paper bag puppet to a much more complex puppet like this one that was 3D printed can be a great physical avatar. The kid makes the puppet, the puppets in the video, the kid's face never shows up in the video. They have a lot of ownership of that video. That is their text. And at the same time, they're actually using a physical avatar to mask their identity.
0: I love the idea. Right. And, and, and what do you guys think about this? Like having the kids be digital beyond video, but, it's their hands moving up and down, not their faces.
3: I think it's genius.
0: Ooh. We've gone from magical to genius, Sam. That's pretty cool. Right? I'll take it. Yeah. I've what been called worse a 3D today. printer and a, and, a, and a lemon, apparently. That's pretty right?
3: cool. And Sam, I, I want to add, too, to kind of what you said. So if I'm ever videoing students um, and planning to share on on. Um, social media, I say, Hey, I just took a picture of you. Is it cool if I post it on Twitter? Do you care? You know, because I think that's a really good skill for them to learn when they take pictures of other people to ask permission, say, Hey, I just took this awesome group photo. Is everybody okay if I put this on my Instagram or whatever? I just think it's one of those things that we, we have to model as adults and, Mm -hmm. and too often we don't. I always check to make sure that they have a photo release on file, But most adults don't ask them if it's okay, you know, so in the high school kids are like, wow, did she just ask me? That was so cool.
1: Right, because you just respected their image to them.
3: That's
2: right.
1: Yeah, and that's huge (laughs) because, you know, if we're trying to empower them to be responsible with their own image, what better way to let them know that actually matters than asking them about their own image?
2: And I think making it part of the vernacular that it just, it, it becomes something that you do ask. Like you said, Casey, I ask, I, now that like, I have three children who are in uh, senior kindergarten here. So which I think is like your kindergarten because I think you have pre-K K and then agreed the second grade. And I now will ask them, like, I'm, I'm doing a talk a couple of weeks at a conference, and I want to use their picture in one of my slides. And I say, can I read you my speech? And I read it, and all of a sudden they popped up, and I paused it, and I said, is it okay if I use your picture in this? And they were like, well, yeah, of course, because they think they're going to be famous because I'm giving a speech and their pictures in it. But I, I just want them to realize that they have control of their image because, you know, you hear about this a lot. Like, we are we even as, as parents in our generation have, you know, thrust our children into our, you know, Facebook feeds and our Instagrams and our Snapchats and whatever. And and we're building their digital identity before they even have a chance to decide what that might look like for themselves. So I think there's a lot of pause that adults can have too. And if you don't follow the
1: edu triplets on Twitter at right? edu triplets, you should, it's <laughs> great.
0: <laughs> but, but even that was Sam brings up a point. And I've always said as a podcaster for the last seven years, there's a lot of me that's out there there's a lot of them that's out there but i still feel even with that twitter account there's a lot of privacy that i have for those kids and nobody needs to know about those things um i, I don't think it's a secret that this has been a big topic in congress the last couple of days <laughs> um i don't know anybody out there who's listening might have noticed that that facebook has kind of been on the hot seat and many of the congressmen Don't really know what they're talking about when it comes to these things. One of the questions that they had asked yesterday of Mr. Zuckerberger, as they called him, was how is it or is it possible for a parent to approve a student account? And I was thinking about that, going, well, look, you can, even if it's a 10 year old that wants to sign up for any app. And it flashes up a screen that says, what is your age? That doesn't mean anybody has to tell the truth about it. But number two, how does a digital environment ask for parent permission? I I don't have an answer for that yet. Like, how how, can can a company say I need parent permission, Sam?
1: well, Well, I can tell you a story of how that was done in a way that was really challenging. They've since made it better, but I don't actually know how. (laughs) Um, right? Because I think I'm out of date on this. But when Tinkercad started up and I was started using Tinkercad with kids, there was a point where you put in the kid's name and then you had to put in their parent's email address and you had to wait for the parent to email back approval for the kid to be able to do anything. This meant that I spent four weeks trying to set up (laughs) A Take Your Cat account for one kid just playing roundy round. Because, of course, these approval codes were good for 72 and a half minutes. And they were <laughs> issued at 3 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time. It was like, what? Yeah.
3: I I have a, another scenario that, that's kind of a fail. But when we went one-to-one originally and we were moving to give students email accounts an unnamed company... Asked that it needed parent permission, right? And so the way that they wanted to get parent permission was to collect a credit card from the parents and charge them one penny on the credit card. Can you imagine? We oh my were like goodness. we were like days away from like launching this whole big thing for students to have email accounts and someone did it with their child that also is a student in our district and was like, "Whoa, wait a minute. We can't do this." And we had to pull the plug on the whole thing and regroup wow. and and so but I think that I'm not really sure my My oldest is seven, so I just keep the iTunes password. So that's how I kind of verify what he pays for and what he installs and what he doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that with – I have a neighbor who has some older students, and I think that they have to – when they want to download something from iTunes, I think that my neighbor has to approve them.
2: Does anybody know about that? I, mean, I, so I, don't, I don't know totally about it, but I do know that in family accounts, yes. I, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you can have the person to have to approve or not approve, whoever the, the company. is. But, that,
0: but that's because you know mom creates account and designates this email as child, Okay, I think is how it works. That's not, hey, it's the middle of second period. I go to math class. The math teacher says, hey, sign up for uh, this company right? Like how, how, do, how does that happen? That's, that's a question I would love to get some more information on. My second thing that I want to hit is one of the things that Congress had mentioned was something about being 16. And I know Zuckerberg went back and forth saying, look, 13 is kind of where the law is, but you're saying 16. And... Is there any, I mean, I know you had said basically do a command F and look for anything that says 13 or 18, but is there a gray area when it comes to that? Or is it 13 and under you're done if you're, if you're in fifth grade and you're 13, you can. It could be that members of Congress
1: are completely confused about 16 year olds in another sense.
0: I'm going to change the subject now. So my next question here is, is there a point where a student is unable to make these decisions? For instance, let's say that there are 15, 16, 17 years old, but because they, I want to say this sensitively, because they're working in a special services type program, they're not working necessarily at a 15, 16, 17 year old level. Should we be concerned at at a situation like that or not? Is, Is it? No, they're 15. Data is data.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the way it's written now is is by age, and that's the only kind of descriptor there. Um, but I I think you're right. We should think about that. We should be aware of that for sure.
1: And, you know, schools do act as in locus parentis, right? So you can kind yeah. of extrapolate from that and say we always need to be acting in a student's best interest. So if we're a school and we're going to put students in a position where they're vulnerable and we're not protecting their interests, then that's certainly questionable. But, you know, all of our students are going to be living in this digital world, so we need to work with all of them to the best of whatever their abilities are to understand what they're doing and when.
3: And, and, Sam, I go the opposite way on local parentis because I've had some teachers say, well, I'm acting as the parent, so I'm giving them parental permission to use this tool. And I'm like, oh, no, let's not do that. Like, let's, you know, local parentis is, is meant for other things. And, and in terms of service, it will say attention school personnel, you may act in lieu of parent and give parent permission. Like, the vendors will say that in their terms of service. And, and I, I say as often as anybody will listen, we are not playing that game. It is, there's no gray area. If it's parent permission, it's parent permission.
1: Because really, the, the thing of it is, like, data has value. And you can't sell what doesn't belong to you. And why would you sell what belongs to your students, right? Like, and, and yeah, it just gets ugly fast. And I think that as teachers, we're constantly essentially put almost in harm's way by being so are having our lives so closely intertwined with so many other people's that when it comes down to this data, you have to have some sort of outside standard you're looking to that you can say, this is why we're making that decision. It's not on me.
0: So let's take a look at where do we go from here? Right. Are there places that we can turn to for help? Are there places that we can go to to learn about these? And Casey, you and I this week, we're talking about a a certain platform that has helped you out a lot. Talk to us a little bit about um, Learn Platform.
3: So in our district learn platform has really kind of helped us to categorize some of these resources and tools. It's given us a a very clear approval process so that teachers know they can kind of go to learn platform they i call it the shopping list right so instead of going to google and saying what can i use to make student presentations right they can go to learn and they can see what's already been vetted and approved by our district and then they don't have to worry about any of this because somebody else has gone through and either tagged that tool as you know allowed for for use or 13 and up or parent consent required. So we have done as much of that work as we possibly can for them. So I would say that was that's really how LEARN has helped us in in that aspect. But it also has given us an official approval process. So if a teacher looks for a tool that's not in there and they don't know what the terms of service are and they want to know, they can request it right there in the platform. And then the request goes through the proper channels to be approved and tagged with the right level of access and privacy and and outlines all that for them. So that is how Learn Platform has kind of taken some of that burden off the teacher.
0: So we're going to certainly put the links and stuff in our show notes here. But one of the things that I loved about this when doing this show was that Learn Platform as a teacher is completely free. You can check it out. You can sign up. Unless you're under 13, you can do all of these different things and and check it out. It's learnplatform.com. I'm also going to put the show note links in here. Um, like I said, this was from our brand new show, EdTech in the Classroom. And if you go over to edtechintheclassroom.com, you can check this stuff out. You know, with everything going on out here, I would love to know what our listeners think. You can, of course, reach out to us here over on Tech Educator Podcast. And, you know, you can always find me on Twitter at TeacherCast. Ask a question. But I want to just kind of throw one last thing here at the panel as we're going through here. What do we do to educate each other? Right. Is it up to us to to police each other? Is it up to our district to police us? Um, Not that I think Sam in his role should be going to the classroom next door and saying, hey, you're using Flipgrid. Did you know? But Mm -hmm. how how do we police everything? Because if I'm right, Casey, if we tell our kids sign up for this and then there is a data breach, that's on us and our license, isn't it? Yes. Enough said, right?
3: And that's why I always say when I protect, I'm really in this to to help protect students, but also teachers, because I don't think teachers recognize the risk that they're putting themselves in by going rogue, uh,
0: I guess. (laughs) So in talking to a teacher about this recently at a conference, um, a, a teacher who wasn't a tech person basically looked at me and said, well, then I'm done. I, why would I try this ed tech thing? Why would I even look at this? There's so many different rules. I don't want to do it. I'm going to go back to my paper way. I felt really—I I don't know what I felt at that point, other than just wanted to give her a hug and go. No, you, like we can help this, Jen. What do you think? I mean, how do you support teachers that might say, "I want to try"? You know, do you say, "Hey, go for Flipgrid," or do you say, "Read the terms of service. Your license is on the line."
2: Um, I think Flipgrid is an interesting example because I'm a Flipgrid ambassador. So maybe well, not. Okay. But, uh, well, but yeah. okay. I know, I know, I know. I, I didn't uh, take. This, puppet grid. Yeah. Try puppet okay, grid. Puppet grid. So I, it, I think it's interesting in my role because I do see that all the time, right? I'm an ed tech coach. I go into schools and I, I help them and they say, okay, I need a tool that can do this. And, and I, I found this and it's awesome. And so I'm constantly having those conversations. And I think that's my role to have those Um, with them. And that's, you know, I I have to do my due diligence to make sure that the children are safe. But I don't think I feel that way only because of my role. I feel that way because I think that we're all in the business of, of finding, you know, of keeping children safe and making sure they learn. And I think I would be negligent if I didn't raise concerns and I'm not saying I'm going to go and run to a principal or to the district or to my federation my union if I see it but I, I certainly think you need to say something I, I would almost say it's akin to if you see a friend leaving a restaurant who's had too many drinks and you don't say something to them about what you're doing right now is irresponsible for yourself and others then we're just doing a disservice to society on a whole and maybe that's a bit of a hyperbole, but we're in the business of protecting children. And I think having those conversations, so long as they can be collegial and we, it comes from a place of of respect and with the right tone. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having those. And then in fact, I encourage people to have them. Sam, what do you think?
0: I think
1: that, you know, it's, it's always tricky giving other people the benefit of what you know But it's the kind of thing that needs to happen in a structured way on a staff level and as well as individual to individual, because when there are privacy concerns, we need to be thinking about it. And frankly, as a teacher, I want to hear about it from the teacher next door long before I hear about it from the parents of the students I teach.
0: Very good words of advice. Casey, uh, last words on all this stuff. What's your what's your final thought tonight?
3: I think that the important piece is awareness, right, that teachers need to be aware, students need to be aware, everybody needs to be aware that this is, is really, and I think probably Facebook and Congress is doing a good job of kind of putting it out there in the news right now that, that this is a real thing and it's a real threat, and we just need to know what's being done with our data, where it's going, who's collecting it, and and what they're doing with it is, is really so, and, and in the case of a teacher who needs to protect students, they just need to kind of know, hey, you know, I've done a little bit of work here and I've, I've identified that this tool is okay. And sometimes it's more work, sometimes it's less work. But as long as there's there's some attention being paid to this, it can't be something that says, I don't, you know, I don't have time for that. I don't, I don't care about that. That's, that can't be an option in, in today's classroom.
0: You know, I think the one thing that we can all agree on is that this is a topic that needs to have conversations on teachers to teachers, teachers to tech directors, tech directors to community members. Everything that's out there needs to have a conversation and a plan for yourself, for your school district, and especially for the students, no matter what age they are. We want to hear from you about this. You can, of course, find this show over on techeducatorpodcast.com. This is episode 179, and you can always reach out to us over on teachercast.net slash voicemail. And, uh, you know, if you want to come on the show and talk about this, we would love to have you on. Casey, thank you so much for your time today. It was amazing having you on talking about this, uh, talking us through this, this very valuable topic.
3: Thanks for hosting me. It was great.
0: And everybody else, we have a great show for you throughout every single time of course we're here live every single wednesday at 8 30 eastern time over on teachercast.tv we stream on youtube on facebook on anywhere that you can find video we are here on wednesday nights and of course you can find us over on itunes google play and wherever else podcasts are And of course, we want to thank our live audience over on TeacherCast.tv for everything that they've been doing for us here. We appreciate their help and support. On behalf of everybody here on the TeacherCast Educational Network, my name is Jeff Bradbury, reminding you to keep up the great work in your classrooms and continue sharing your passions with your students.